Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to Citizen. We have a very special guest today, Azra Nomani, author, activist. You do a lot of stuff. Um, as a matter of fact, you may um, you may have run into some people I know cause in the Loudoun County situation, some some buddies of ours. But we'll get to that later. So uh, tell our audience who you are, what you do, where you come from, all that stuff. Give us a little, uh, um, I guess, brief history of Azra Nomani. Oh sure. So um, I was born in Bombay, India, to very conservative Muslim parents that grew up in post-British colonial India, and that becomes important to my story. I'm the granddaughter of lawyers in India, one of whom my paternal grandfather represented the freedom fighters who fought against British colonial mm. rule. And, you know, he mostly lost. They ended up going to the Guantanamo Bay of India, uh, this place called Andaman Nicobar Islands, a jail there. And um, and my parents, you know, were uh, just the last generation under that colonial rule. So it just becomes important to uh, understand this in terms of wh who I am today. But um, there I was, born into in, into this family. We decided, my parents decided to come to the United States. And so at the age of four, in the summer of 1969, I got on a TWA jet with my brother. We were both wearing matching clothes that my grandmother had made for us in case we got split apart and uh, the flight attendants needed to find us and put us back together again. And so I grew up in this country, in the U.S., I first lived in New Jersey and then West by God, Virginia, and was really always proud of being a mountaineer and, and the idea that mountaineers are always free. And my narrative ends up becoming the story of, of our, you know, world uh, and its national security crises of the day, because I grew up as an extremist interpretation of Islam was being exported to the world. My parents did not practice it. I became a journalist and the 9-11 attacks got me to go on an airplane like a lot of other journalists mm. to danger in Pakistan. And there I confronted the extremism uh, that I believe is uh, you know, beyond just one religion, but can be found 
throughout society in sectarianism. And that also factors into the work that I do today. Um, I had a baby um, born and made um, in Pakistan. My niece calls him my souvenir. And I brought him back to West Virginia uh, in my belly because I didn't have a wedding ring on. Mm. And in the yeah interpretation of Islam, I was a criminal. Um, a lot more happened in Pakistan that I'll talk about more. But it's that little baby who grew up into being a young man here in the U.S. that propelled me to become this mama bear in fighting this new extremism that I see in the United States of wokeism. And that is the, you know, narrative thread in my life that connects me. I think as I was thinking about the values that are important to me of um, fighting, you know, for a humanism, you know, a humanism that values all people as they are. And that's what I got to experience in the U.S. And that's what I'm fighting for today. And so love to unpack mm. that. And yeah, I'm just really proud of I've got my book here. Um, it's a really subtle, very subtle title, uh, very subtle title and very subtle cover. But this is a symbol here of the leftists that I believe are a threat right now to the United States in this new ideology of wokeism. Mm. And then this is a symbol of the Islamism that I've challenged as an extremism within my community. And the irony then today is, you know, the subtitle of this woke army that's a red-green alliance, so the red and the green, that is destroying America's freedom. And as a um, person who has chosen this country with my family, I'm even more dedicated uh, than ever to making sure that my younger self, you know, and the kids that are growing up today can live and, and strive for all the successes that I was allowed. So really love to um, unpack all this with you. Yeah, sure. So your, um, your perspective coming from the, uh, I guess, Asian subcontinent to the United States was that I, I guess one of the there, there's a lot of different value exchanges that happen. There's a lot of differences uh, and disparate values that that the West and East have, or West and Middle East. Uh, I guess if you want to include uh, some of the other countries where this stuff comes from. But um, one of the things is at the time we weren't prioritizing our character traits as our identity necessarily, right? Like your identity was kind of wrapped up in in what you did more so than who you were, if that makes sense to you from a Western perspective. So for example, um, uh, someone in the 1980s in, in the U S their identity would be, well, I'm in finance or I work on a farm and I, I do this. And, and usually it's kind of centered around what am I providing to the community? You know what I mean? What, what's my value, right? Like how am I being valuable to the community at large? How am I being valuable to my family? Um, and now it's kind of like, it's very similar to what I ran into in the Middle East uh, and, and what I've seen in some of the other, uh, some of the other cultures in, in the East, generally speaking, which is to say your demographic is your identity, right? And that's kind of antithetical to what America was supposed to be about, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, a lot of people have talked about that. So from your perspective, 
you come here and you you probably feel some sense of relief, if not great relief, to be like, I could just live my life and be a good person here. You know what I mean? And I can do the things that it, it is in my control to be successful here. And for the most part, people aren't trying to stop me from doing that because of who I am as a person. And then you, after living here for some amount of time, we're starting to see that kind of nefarious idea that your demographic and your other characteristics like that become your identity. And here we are, right? I mean, it's, it's super problematic. Yeah. You know, I'm just listening to you and remembering my father's experience. It was the summer of 1962 and he'd gotten a ticket to Manhattan, but it was Manhattan, Kansas, not the big <laughs> city of Manhattan. Yeah. Um, it was typical trip for a lot of international students because the land grant universities mm -hmm. that are at our state universities really support this kind of uh, international exchange. And my dad ended up, you know, in this rural America and he met Miss Dairy Queen 1962. He has a picture with her. And he also, you know, got got an old car from, well, back then it was, you know, the car of the 1960s. So if we can imagine one of those and he's, you know, tooling around Manhattan and around the corner, he sees a car wash advertised. And at the car wash the, in this car with his buddies, they see a professor and it was one of their professors and the professor was working side by side with a student. And my dad was just so appreciative of this idea of the dignity of labor mm. beyond identity. Like the professor's rank was not something that was going to make him order the kid around, right? Like they worked side by side. And my dad really appreciated that. Um, like, like, as you know, like a lot of the world is stratified, just like you're saying by different elements of identity. It could be gender, it could be race, it could be tribe, ethnicity, uh, whether you're from this city or that city, whether you're from the north of the country or the south of the country, whether your skin color is this shade of brown or that shade of brown, like this kind of bigotry differentiation, it's not, you know, a, a trait of just white supremacy, as the ideologues try to say now, it is a, a cultural trait in many cultures. Well, my dad really appreciated it and I and my mom did too because it was here then that you know she was able to be a, a enterprising entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. She became a babysitter uh, and she took care of other people's kids so that she could raise the money for my brother and I to come over. And uh, she knew a freedom that she hadn't been able to enjoy in India as um you know, as much of a democracy as India was and has continued to be. Um, and then for me, for sure, the biggest, you know, barrier that I would have faced and that many girls do face around the world is the gender divide, mm -hmm. you know, and gender expectations that we as a nation in the United States had started to uh, dismantle with ideas that women could go in the workplace, right? That a girl 
could be equal to a boy, that the girl could have equal access to sports, you know, these these fundamental ideas that we live with today. Um, I remember when I was a girl, I would lament on trips back to India why my brother was allowed to go run around the neighborhood enjoying himself while I had to stay in the home. But, you know, it was that 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 um, split of that idea that girls and women needed to stay in the home and boys and men could go out in the world. But, you know, my parents definitely, they raised me, they raised me to be the woman that I am today. Um, and, and, and I did grow up with freedom, you know, in this, that's why I love mountaineers are always free because they're in the foothills of the Appalachian mountains. I got to do things like run, you know, like that seems so simple maybe to people, but living there in this neighborhood named North Hills, I, um, just fell into, fell in love with running. And despite the hills that we've got there, and every day I would stride out and going down um, Cottonwood Street and up Headley and take a turn here and there and kept, kept a dutiful log. Um, Bruce Jenner was my idol. <laughs> I would buy Wheaties, yeah, and would have breakfast with him every morning ran started running 10ks and i just tell this story because across the world this na nation of iran was emerging as an islamic republic and they were making rules in society like the ones that are continue today that a woman cannot walk outside without a, her head cover. Mm -hmm. She can't feel the wind in her hair, which is a joy that I experienced every day I would run those hills. <clears throat> and this idea of sports, you know, that a girl is going to break her hymen and lose her virginity if she runs or rides a bike mm -hmm. after nine before she's hit her period. So there was just these restrictions that I saw in this extremism of my faith interpreted in a way that my parents didn't practice. And so you're absolutely right that, you know, growing up for me from in the seventies and then eighties and nineties, I, I um, was able to appreciate something that it's just such an irony, what is being uh, perpetuated today, because um, in philosophical terms, I later ended up doing some reporting on Hinduism and Buddhism, and there's this concept of non-duality, which is more than just even duality, but like that we are be we transcend the bodies into which we were born. You know, we are mm -hmm. more than that, and that's to the point that you're making. You know, we are these people who, as Martin Luther King said should be considered based on our character, right? Mm -hmm. And our being um, and our contributions or not contributions. And so that is a really important spiritual concept to me that actually drives me today as an activist, because exactly like you said, this these identity markers have created a value system mm -hmm. for people. And that completely defies the 
experience that I was able to enjoy as a girl growing up in this country and that I so firmly believe in my heart as the best values for society. It it seems to me like a kind of a de facto social caste system, right? We didn't necessarily have a caste system here. I don't, I don't know that most Westerners are familiar with that sort of thing. You talked earlier about the idea that uh, racial prejudice, particularly based on skin color, is somehow intrinsically a white supremacist thing. But, you know, in Asian cultures, the darker the skin, the poorer the person typically. That's a, And I don't, I don't know that most Westerners understand that this um, but, I mean, I, it doesn't, why well, I, I guess it's just the propaganda that you're fed all the time, yes. but this stuff has existed forever. Right. And it, and it, and it permeates forever. every culture and it's, um, it's weird to me that, you know, we developed what I think is a pretty good culture in the West. Right. And, and here's what I mean by that. Despite the mistakes and, and, and some outright evils that have been done, the system of our culture has been self-correcting, Right because it, it implores people to respect the individual. And at some point, no matter who's being oppressed or, or what prejudices exist, if you, uh, you know, if you use our system appropriately, then you will get to know these people over time and your prejudices will fall away. It's hard to hate people up close. You know what I mean? We have, uh, it, you'll see, you know, people from cultures that have been at war for a thousand years just their neighbors and friends now you know what i mean and i think that is what <clears throat> i think that's probably the most uh elegant part of western society at least the american experience it's that it, yeah. it is it is designed to be self-correcting you know what i mean and and other places are designed to hold the status quo to make sure the caste system stays as it is to make sure that the aristocracy stays in power or the systems and institutions stay in power but here in america it's been kind of intentionally designed to be self-correcting. Yeah, I mean, I definitely believe in this, cult, the cultural values here. And what's really important is that then we develop institutions mm -hmm. that reflect those values. And that's what I think also makes the United States really remarkable. You know, it's not only that you and I believe that people should be treated fairly, right? But mm -hmm. we have constitutional protections for that principle. We have case law now. And that is what is at threat today. We have ideologues and activists who want to undermine the very institutions that mirror the values that are not to um, uh, to um, ridicule this word, but to really reclaim it. I believe that when you talk about self-correcting, that's progress. And I do mm. believe that the far left has hijacked this term of progressiveness sure, yeah. yeah and it is progressive like we have been a progressive society and i would say that like um there is a remarkable remarkable progress and self-correction happening all throughout the world i know you know it um we have muslim reformers in countries where they would be killed right and they are killed for challenging the status quo we have uh been able to uh, you know in India, get rid of awful, awful traditions like a, a wife mm -hmm. killing herself on the fires if sure. her husband mm -hmm. dies. Um, and 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 I think you know when we think about ourselves as a global society, we learn from each other. You know the 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 thing is like America 
went in this direction of the nuclear family, for example, through the 50s uh, and 60s and 70s, and partly through, you know, some of the uh, new arrangements that we had during the lockdown, mm -hmm. you know, and just survival as families, we ended up in extended intergenerational families where uh, people weren't as separate just to help each other out. But also, you know, there is some, I, I hear from my friends all the time, kids living with their parents, not as a failure of the child, but like as a integration, you know, of the family unit. And so those are some traditions that have continued in my part of the world that I, from which I come that I think we can borrow from also to continue to help the um the 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 uh really to me like the perpetuation of the values that we care about because like when we care about the human being it doesn't matter that the the adult child is living with the parents it's people human beings living together supporting mm. each other uh being um really the support system that we need I was a single mother and I needed my parents in the home. They were living under the same roof with me because I needed them for those 6 a.m. wake ups. You know, when my son hit middle school and I'd been working till two in the morning and I was bleary eyed trying to try to get him out of bed and myself out of bed. And so I think, um, you know, to your point, like it's it's all not a binary. And I know you know that like like it is um, it there's a lot of really great values that we can learn from each other in this world and and that's going back to like my family story it is just so um disingenuous you know just like you said when um the uh the ideologues and activists try to smear you know america as a white supremacist nation built on built by the colonial empire and then by colonials um my ancestors took inspiration from america you know these so-called white supremacists um and colonials who because they were the first to get rid of this yoke of british colonialism mm. and then um, when we took inspiration from the American colonials, the civil rights movement here in the United States took inspiration from Mahatma Gandhi mm. and his tactics of nonviolence. So we learn from each other and nobody has a monopoly on tyranny or virtue, I sure, think. Yeah. And, 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 and that we know, and, and, but it's their false binary that, that is so destructive now to being human really in this world yeah there's this um the principle you're talking about is called uh satyagraha right it's the the principle of uh not necessarily pacifism but non-violent political action and then the second part of it is accepting the consequences of your actions right if you you know if the government comes after you then you just deal with that right and i think there's uh <clears throat> The, res the, the resolve that is embedded in that principle, I think, is what's really important, right? Yes. This episode of Citizen is brought to you by Black Rifle Coffee Company. Join the Black Rifle Coffee Club and get fresh roasted freedom delivered straight to your door. Black Rifle Coffee Company is veteran-operated and supports America's military, 
law enforcement, and first responders. Get premium coffee delivered every month. Choose your favorite roast, rounds, and delivery schedule anytime you like. Members also get free shipping and access to exclusive partner discounts. The best value you're going to get from Black Rifle Coffee is the coffee club. As again, you can choose the roast, whether you're like light, dark, or medium. You can choose the texture. You can choose whether you want uh, ground coffee, whether you want to grind it yourself and get whole bean, or if you use a Keurig and you want the coffee rounds and the delivery schedule with a wide uh, array of options for that. Get 20% off your first order with the code CITIZEN. So go to blackriflecoffee.com, sign up for the coffee club, use the code CITIZEN, and get 20% off your first order. This episode of Citizen is also brought to you by ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. Right now, Ghostbed is offering 40% off Ghostbed bundles where you get a mattress and an adjustable base. For everything else, 30% off if you use the code drinking bros at ghostbed.com forward slash drinking bros. If you get the uh, 40% off deal, if you use the 40% off bundle deal, you're going to get uh, a mattress and all your stuff, your base, your sheets, your pillows, all this stuff for about 30 to 35 bucks a month. They've got a zero down, 0% financing plan for up to 60 months, six zero months, that's five years, uh, about the lifespan of the average bed. So it works out great for you, works out great for uh, the company. So go check it out. Go to ghostbed.com for slash drink it, bros. Whether you're in the market for a bed, uh, an adjustable base, whether you just need sheets or pillows or any of that stuff, they got the best, the mattress protector, the weighted blanket. They have everything you need there, 30% off everything. Use the code DRINKINGBROS at ghostbed.com forward slash DRINKINGBROS. Or if you need that adjustable base as well and the mattress, get the bundle and everything else you add onto that deal is 40% off. That's such a great, great um, reflection because I I think as you just spoke about it, I think about my dad. Mm. My dad was uh, starving as a boy because there was this thing called the Bengal famine. Mm. It was in 1943. He was just a little boy. And there's, you know, different versions of the history, but there's no denying that food was denied to people in India. Um, and there was human decisions that led to this by the British military. Mm. Well, um, he got aid, food aid. It was sent from America. And my dad stood in line as a boy for his family many brothers and sisters and when he ate the food it was called it was sorghum wheat that mm. he received he to this day remembers the scratchiness of it going down his throat because it is wheat designed for animals for mm. cattle but my dad didn't swallow grievance then with that he swallowed a sense of responsibility to others he in that experience and that suffering, he got a sense of duty. He survived, right? So in his survival, he felt a duty to serve humanity. And that's what brought him, you know, as a young man then on that airplane to Manhattan. And what was he studying? He was studying animal husbandry. And then he turned that into human nutrition, clinical nutrition. So this survivor of the Bengal famine took his suffering and became a uh, expert in issues of food insecurity and how is is that we can live healthier lives, but um, that that little boy climbed a bunion tree mm. to support 
the march of Mahatma Gandhi when he had his quit India movement mm. for the British that they needed to quit India. And he joined in a march with Mahatma Gandhi. And he, um, I remember my story about my grandfather, like he would go home then to this place where the, the defendants, you know, charged with terrorism against the British would come and their families would come trying to get defense and they knew that they would lose. So, so it's exactly what you said. Like they took, they they understood the consequence. And in that case, the government was the British rule. Mm. They understood it and they they um, suffered because of the, that decision. And, um, and that is the journey, like for all of us in, in one way or another, as we experience tyranny or we see corruption, like how are we going to respond? And and I love the way that you put it in taking lesson, you know, mm. from a concept far away, but one practiced here in other, with other words to describe it, right? Sure, it's, yeah. it's selflessness and it's mm. service. Yeah, we, uh, you know, it's interesting to me that we continue in, in the West to unsolve problems that we've solved in the past. And, and now, I mean, you could see it. You're an author. You know how it is. Um, now people are re-obsessed with things like classic literature and uh, stoicism and things like that. And it's it, it, maybe that's just how it is. You know, we, we jump from one lily pad to another as a culture because we're all trying to make our mark or figure out life or whatever and, and stuff like that. But I, um, I, I wonder from your perspective, uh, and, and this will tie in with the book, the red green Alliance. Um, it is, it has typically been the case that fanatical ideas, whether they be religious or otherwise have moderated over time. It, it usually doesn't it usually isn't the case that things become more violent as time goes by. Usually the bulk of a religion will moderate. Like Christianity is mostly moderate. They're not uh, killing people for being witches anymore, for example, right? Um, yeah. But uh, it seems like more so than any other, Islam is falling behind in the moderation. And I wonder from your perspective why that is exactly. Yeah, um, that's why I want to take back this concept of being progressive, mm. you know, because exactly like I do believe that religions have progressed. And so behind me, the way I my OCD is I organize my books chronologically mm. by year. And so it starts at the top there with the Greek mythology and then uh, Tantra, which is called Tantra mm. in America and Hinduism, then Judaism, Christianity. Islam is right around here. And then, you know, in that span of that time, Islam was born into the seventh century, right, of after the death of Christ. And so we are, in a way, 700 years behind the progressive arc. But um, it's not static, right? Like time mm -hmm. and progress can't be measured only in years. Sure. And unfortunately, what we faced, like all through the bottom here, and then my this entire shelf is behind me, is the extremism it, it expressed within Islam through this movement that we today call Islamism or political mm -hmm. Islam in order to differentiate. Because, you know, some people want to give up on the idea of Islam 
being able to progress. Mm -hmm. But the truth is that just like all faiths, like you said, it can and it has, and it has had very different history where women were equal citizens in society. There was an ideology at that time called the Mutazalites, and they were very big critical thinkers. They got squashed, though. Mm -hmm. They got squashed by the puritanical interpretation that has prevailed to this day in Muslim establishment, but, you know, not in the ordinary lives of most Muslims, because, like, who can live that way? Sure. You know, um, I mean, there's there's three and a half to four million Muslims in America right now. And, and I, I challenge people a lot. They're like, when they make that point that um, Islam is not, I, I guess, moderation uh, or it isn't going to moderate at any point. Um, I, I just, it's, it's very obvious that it has for a lot of right. people, right? Because otherwise right. we would be a constant war with our own citizens and we're not. Yes. And, and what I chronicle in the book, what I confronted then was the Muslim establishment, you know, and what is the Muslim establishment? It is organizations and mosques, unfortunately, that have been funded by these foreign governments. First, Saudi Arabia during my childhood, and now governments including Qatar and Turkey. Uh, foreign interests from Pakistan that are more puritanical, uh, ideological groups, literally like called the Muslim Brotherhood, you know, Ikhwan Muslimin and Jamaat Islami and Tablighi Jamaat, all of these uh, puritanical evangelists. And they have... Um, unfortunately, you know, been able to leverage money and their own mission and vision. Like my dad didn't come here with that on his agenda. You know, he helped build a mosque, but it was a mosque for prayer. It was a mosque that I grew up in, in New Jersey, that it was temporary and we would have our Sunday schools. And I would ask the Sunday school teacher, why are all the, oops, sorry about that. That'll cut off in a second or no worries. Um, but um, I would ask him, why aren't there any women prophets that we learn about? You know, I was able to ask these questions of critical thinking. And my my um, Sunday school teacher, Mahmoud Tahir, he would listen to me very respectfully and kindly. Uh, and And my parents, you know, like I said, they modeled that just exactly what you say, that kind of assimilation with our American experiment here. But unfortunately, what I ran up against after 9-11, and I um, emerged, you know, as a Muslim reformer, fighting for an Islam that rejected those ideas, I ran up against this establishment. And, and that's most of the beginning of the book, because I ended up uh, in the crosshairs of their character assassination campaigns and their dis domestic disinformation campaigns against us as Muslims. So this was now a civil war within our community. And unfortunately, myself, my parents, really great um, leaders that have emerged like Zuli Jasser, mm -hmm. a, a physician in, in Arizona from Syria, Rahil Raza, a journalist in Canada, you know, what we all came up against was this like this organized campaign to discredit us. Well, you know why, it, right? It's like if, if the U.S. war machine is intent on fighting in the Middle East for the next 20 years, as they, they were clearly intent on doing that, then it has to be a boogeyman situation, right? Like the idea that 
there's 4 million Muslims living among us that are fucking just going to work every day. That that's, it's hard to maintain the fear or hatred or dislike or whatever it is required to keep a population on the side of an ongoing war. If they're the people you're fighting are living amongst you, you know what I mean? Without discrediting them. That's it's an information operation campaign. It's the same thing the Russians have done for years. Yeah. Well, really interestingly to make it even more complicated, what we were running up against, just like to borrow your point, we're in this war and we have made alliances now with military bases where? In Saudi Arabia, in Qatar, right? We now have relationships with these governments that actually practice an interpretation of Islam that um, is really counter to the values that you and I have been talking about. Sure, Wahhabist Islam. I mean, it's it's. I, I've said this on the show before, but about 80 to 85% of the primary education facilities in Saudi Arabia, for example, are madrasas, which teach straight up Wahhabist death to the West. You know what I mean? And and they're yes. one of our they're one of our biggest financial and uh, security allies in the world. Right. Yeah. And then Qatar also, mm -hmm. right, with the base there. So what we were actually running up against then, this is just to, um, folks are going to have to think, really follow this this really carefully, but we were running up a, a, against a network funded by those governments and supported by those governments against us as Muslim reformers um, so we were running up against organizations like this uh, organization called the Council on American Islam. Care, yeah. 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 And, and they wanted to discredit us because when we criticize the idea of Islamism and Islamic political governance, mm -hmm. we are arguing against the... Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Entire system of nations like Saudi Arabia, Qatar, and really the UAE and all of those sure, states. Yeah. Um, so this is a threat that we- And Turkey now, you, you mentioned it before, yeah. but Tur Turkey yeah. used to be kind of, I can't remember what the name of the principle is, but it's the, it's the uh, secular government. Uh, they, they have a word for it. It's like 90 years where, you know, uh, but you know, Erdogan is a lunatic. So now we're, yeah. now all of the, not all, but most of the powerful countries in the Middle East are a problem now, right? Yes. And, you know, Saudi Arabia is reforming, but mm. of course, it's still denying its ordinary citizens fundamental human rights. So um, so that is what was shocking to me, honestly, to be a, a citizen in America fighting for this nation and then having networks within this na nation funded and supported by foreign governments working to discredit and sabotage our work. Uh, and unfortunately, the even going far back to the Bush administration, they had their funky alliance with those countries. And then definitely when President Obama came in, you know, they were all in 
with the Muslim Brotherhood mm -hmm. Islamist interests because of this robust lobbying that had been done by those governments to embed themselves as legitimate actors, you know, for so-called reform and democracy in the Middle East. But anybody and everybody should know that that's exactly how the Ayatollah Khomeini came to power in 1979 in Iran, pretending that he was part of this leftist progressive agenda. But as soon as he came to power, the first people he killed were the leftist progressives. Oh, sure, yeah. Same, that's yeah. the same thing Saddam Hussein did. The, his, yeah. his first act in office was to rebuild all the hospitals and schools in the country. And then all of a sudden he started rounding people up for execution afterwards. You know what I mean? And I, I yeah. wonder I wonder why it is. It, it still doesn't make sense to me on the international stage why um, the strange bedfellows. Um, I, I know that there's uh, energy concerns. We were getting a lot of our oil from Saudi Arabia and OPEC at the time. But, you know, the Bush administration made a deal with the Saudi government that if the Saudi government provided intelligence to us to help cut off the head of al-Qaeda, that we, we wouldn't talk about their royal family members who were directly involved in 9-11. And right. obviously it came out after a while. Uh, everybody kind of knew it already, but it, the, the actual evidence came out. But I don't understand. I don't understand why the foreign governments, I don't understand why Saudi Arabia continues to perpetuate this stuff. It seems to me um, like it's just a populist political movement to maintain control that they're couching in Islam. And the only way yeah, to do exactly. that is to make it radical. And I think they're the ones that are holding up the moderation and progress of Islam, oh, frankly. Absolutely. Absolutely. Like this really, really nice way of putting it this populism, ironically, mm. because they are part of the disinformation campaign now that is trying to smear American populism mm -hmm. you know so it's so ironic like they are the ones that are trying to brand america as white supremacists and yet they practice muslim supremacy they are the ones that are trying to perpetuate america as a nation of racism when in fact they are built on institutional mm -hmm. racism and bigotry they try to perpetuate america as a nation in which it's a police state and and the citizens have no rights. And in fact, that is exactly what those nations are. And um and what you're you're absolutely right. What they are able to do is preserve their own identities and, and their own survival. And our complicity in this as a nation mm -hmm. in being in alliance with them is so painful to me. I cannot even begin to tell you because the evidence is there. It's in every single one of these books behind me. It is in the testimony of Muslims who have survived that kind of tyranny and a plea, you know, a plea by us to stop enabling and allying with these these terrorists, really, mm -hmm. and these tyrants. And, and, and the best evidence of that today and the best success story, too, to give people some hope is that this is what America has done with the government of Iran, mm -hmm. you know, and, uh, and and this is these are like to, to use this analogy, you know, they are the Islamists. And what we have had is leftists and Democratic Party, you know, and others in alliance with them. Code Pink has done field mm -hmm. trips to Tehran with the made Medea Benjamin, their their founder, wearing a pink headscarf, you know, to show her 
flag for feminism in a nation that doesn't even allow women to live with the wind in their hair. So it's such an irony. And and I'm so happy in the, the book is dedicated first to my family and then to all the accidental activists with me, uh, including these brave women and men now in Iran that are chanting that simple freedom, that simple mantra of women, woman life freedom. Mm-hmm. And I'm so happy that like uh, just this week, Masi Alinijad, who is a activist, and pioneer fighting for women's rights in Iran. She was honored by Time magazine as a woman hero. Mm. So somehow we were able to penetrate, you know, the conscience really of the mainstream in America to recognize true heroism and true values. But for the most part, um, it, it's still such a uphill battle for us. Yeah, it's, as it it's, is for um, I would just say like yeah. as it is for Americans yeah. now like you you I I appreciate coming on your podcast and talking about these deeper um, struggles for values because it's one that your your listeners should understand very well that that sense of being up, up against a machine you know that is trying to defeat you because that's what we're facing in yeah. America too today yeah 100 percent people uh you know someone who is uh someone who values western values particularly american values will say something like <clears throat> uh what i said which is our system is built to be self-correcting um you can read it right in the in the founding documents uh, all people are created equal and then they will say well you had slaves though and women couldn't vote and non-landowning men couldn't even vote at the time it's like yeah that that was a failure and the system corrected itself that's the point that is the point and it it feels like for a very long time that was the point and people who uh, were abolitionists or people on the left who were fighting Jim Crow or whatever, the women's suffrage movement, they were all kind of leaning on those founding documents like, hey, what you're doing is not right and here's the mm-hmm. proof. It's the American mm-hmm. document, founding documents that say you're not right. And it was a hard, it was a hard argument to deny. That's why they won the argument. Um, right. But at some point in America – we went from the baseline expectation being that uh, immigrants will assimilate into our Western culture because we do feel like it is not not even Western culture. I would say American culture specifically because we feel like it is uh, not the people, but the culture itself because of what it is, is superior to one that, that preys on the weak. You know what I mean? Uh, that mm-hmm. was the expectation that you would assimilate into our culture. Uh, you treat people with respect. When you have the opportunity to do so, you will help people. And if somebody uh, needs you to defend them, you'll do that as well. And and we went from that to now our now American culture capitulates to other cultures when they come here. They make space and defer to foreign cultures. And it seems like that kind of defeats the point of having developed a superior culture in the first place, which, by the way, is not tied to any race or ethnicity. Uh, it, it is rather the fact that we've we don't have things like honor killings. We don't round people up and execute them because they're gay. We don't, uh, if somebody does violate your right to free speech and movement, then you have some legal recourse against them, right? There's a, there's a way to come back from that. But after enough lies and propaganda, um, enough people have begin, begun, th- this is the, the truly bizarre part to me. People in America have begun to uh, associate things like 
financial success or liberty or education with whiteness. That's the thing now, right? It's that if you're trying to be fit or healthy or successful or you speak eloquently, that's that's white supremacy. It's like, no, that's just a good way to do things. You know what I mean? It's a good way to fucking make sure you have a pretty happy life. And anytime you reduce an argument to demographics instead of principles, I feel like you've lost the point entirely. Yeah, it's been strategic. That's exactly what I've been able to uh, unpack in my reporting over these last 20 years. I thought it was a pretty straightforward argument about how we should analyze progress, really, in America on even issues of women's rights in mosques. Mm -hmm. I borrowed on the civil rights movement saying that separate is unequal. Right. And I was told, no, no, but we have another standard for places of worship and we can't uh, expect Muslims, you know, to practice that. And I thought, well, that's a surrender then of a simple value. Mm -hmm. I was told this by, you know, progressives, right, by feminists and like you don't have the right to ask them to change. Um yeah. and and maybe I don't, right? But you you do have the right to uh I I guess <laughs> uh no shirt, no shoes, no service. I, like right, you you either play by the rules or get the fuck out basically. Yeah, but the thing is, this is what was the this is what the complexity has become is um you play by whose rules, right? Mm. So in the United States, I thought that our rules were separate is unequal. But all of a sudden, I learned that, oh, in a place of worship like a mosque or, you know, just to be fair, um, in an Orthodox synagogue or in the Catholic Church, when it comes to employment, mm -hmm. you can actually practice what you were just saying, like no shirt, no service, mm -hmm. right? You can make the rules even if it means gender inequality and um, and on somebody something like women's rights at the mosque, people might be able to understand it really clearly because it's so it seems just so obvious that a woman should not be told that she has to enter through the back door mm -hmm. or she she cannot be in the main hall. But you know, it does translate into, other ideas that people might hold dearly to themselves that like, oh, well, a woman um, cannot, you know, have a certain role in the church mm -hmm. because that's the way the, the the religion is interpreted. So it gets complicated. Like, I will definitely grant you that. But that's the kind of conversation we're supposed to have when you're just like you said, self-correcting, you know, you're, you're like, look at things and say, hey, is this upholding? our values as a nation. And I thought that it didn't, you know, I thought it was so obvious that like, when I walked up to the front door of my mosque in the um, fall of 2003, this elder greeted me and he said, sister, take the back door. And I was like, what? This is my town in West Virginia where mountaineers are always free. You're gonna tell me to take the back door, you know, like buy the garbage can, right? Um, and so it became a big battle for us. And at the beginning, I was a hero at the Women's Studies Department at West Virginia University. You know, I was fighting for women's rights and feminism. But then what I found is exactly what you were just talking about, is that the tactics that they needed to use 
to uh, shut people up like me and discredit us was to then say that, oh, Asra is being an Islamophobe mm. or a racist because she is criticizing something within Islam. And that's how they have, uh, you know, used our um, own values in this nation against us so that our own um, arguments for civil rights and other things, they have, they are exploiting it so that uh, I will just say, like I studied in graduate school, this field called cross-cultural communications. And you might've learned some of these concepts, but what we learned was that there's high context cultures and low context cultures. And a high context culture would be a culture where you have a lot of relationships and you need context to understand situations, people, you might have to have, and I, I did training to military folks going to Afghanistan and I would teach them, you know, hey, you need to have, be flexible because they're not going to just all show up at meeting oh zero right time. Oh, yeah. They're, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. We had, we had to teach our people as well. Not like, uh, just the haggle culture is a big part of it as well. Like it's, there's a lot of gamesmanship and indirect conversation that happens there. Right. Indirect. Exactly. So that's high context culture. Mm -hmm. And then low context is direct and there is, um, clear authority and obviously military and the military is a very low context, But then when I was training Marines in Camp Pendleton, Mm. I asked them, like, where are you from? And so the guy would be from Arkansas somewhere. I was like, how many people in your town? 400. Who's the most important person in that town? It's Uncle Bob. And I said, same thing. You know, this is a Marine living in a low context establishment, right? The institution of the military. Mm. But he understood high context culture because that's how he lived. Mm. And 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 that's where I say, like, none of us, even as individuals, nor as a society, are binary. Like, I, I was late for your um, your podcast because I wasn't paying attention to my calendar, right? And then, so I wasn't being low context, right? I was caught in the moment of a, you know, Twitter thread that I was putting t- together, and and then you're high context enough, like you get it, you like you'd like to be on time with things, but you didn't judge me. You didn't shame me. Right. You like worked with it. Mm -hmm. And so you will want an appointment on time and you've got all of it in you. I have it all in me. A a nation does our South culture is considered more high context than Mm -hmm. the Northeast. And so what these ideologues and activists have done in this universe of critical race theory is they have adopted this uh, long standing communications model and they have imposed race upon it so that is why we literally now have these folks using the same principles of low context culture and assigning it to white supremacy the idea of being on time the idea of sticking to an agenda having correct uh, punctuation and spellings these are all considered symbols now of white supremacy they were they're just parts of a low context culture and then they elevate you know their activist community and world to 
being non-white supremacist, right? Mm. But trust me, when the Women's March uh, was organizing in um, you know New York City, they had a run of show. You know, they had a lineup. They were very white supremacist, to use their term, mm. about who was going to speak, when they were going to speak, what's the order, how many minutes each person was going to get. So this is a false binary, and it's so intellectually vacuous that people, nobody should be duped by it. You know, they, please don't ever feel intimidated by it. Don't be shamed by it because it's just a tactic, right? It's a tactic of hijacking your brain so that you will shut up and be silent. And so that's the biggest message that I want to communicate to folks because I've suffered it. I have... I have been paralyzed by them. I have been shamed, um, humiliated. Uh, you know, they have done, they've used every tactic. And I, I sit before you, you know, speaking loud, speaking with confidence about everything that I know because I've gone through that process. And and I, I just want to save people that suffering. So that's why I ended up writing a book about it all because I wanted to show people through examples how they're doing this. And um, and that thread that I was just sh putting out today, mm -hmm. it's about their this network's latest character assassination campaign. And it's against Ron DeSantis, mm -hmm. you know, uh, as a lawyer in Guantanamo, because it is the Islamists and the leftists that want to sabotage him as a politician and free those men in Guantanamo also. Like everybody should recognize like that it's it's got very real like headline implications, but but deep, deep political intentions for um for con conclusions that will just uh, run contrary to fundamental ideas like accountability. You know, like those men in Guantanamo need to be held accountable. like, Yes, uh, we made mistakes with the various, you know, campaigns to try to get uh, testimony from them and to get secrets. It was a nation under at war, and we recognize that changed policies. But we can't free these men, you know, based on this. We can't um, run. We can't accept and buy a character assassination campaign based on their politics. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, this seems like, uh, I'm not sure if you're, uh, familiar with Yuri Bezmenov. Do you know that name? I do know the name. Just tell me what you're thinking about. Um, yeah. so he was a Soviet, uh, agent yeah. and he's kind yes. of, uh, n if not the author of, he's definitely the, the face of the, uh, I guess what you would call the, uh, um, Soviet subversion model. Right. And it's a way to attack a country without actually physically attacking them. So there's three or four stages. There's demoralization where you make them feel bad about who they are as people and about their culture. And then destabilization, which is like <clears throat> um, you interfere with their foreign relations and things like that, which, uh, you know, China just did to us. China just brokered a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and that's not right. good news for the world. It's certainly not good news for us. Um, and then crisis is the third stage and the normalization where this is just the new normal now, right? Where people, and I think we're in that stage because 
uh, if you ask the uh, average 14-year-old these days, like, what, tell me what it means to be an American. They, they're going to have some pretty disparate views than a 14-year-old in 1990, right? Um, the 1990 version would probably say pro because they have direct experience with first-generation Americans, young kids or second-generation Americans who are immigrants in their communities, or they see this stuff on television about the good in the world that America is capable of doing, they're going to have quite a, uh, a different opinion than somebody who now, anytime they go to a classroom or anytime they turn on the news or get on social media, they're taught, they're told, you know, about how America is a colonial, uh, uh, are a colonizer, how, about how white people are intrinsically evil because of all the things they've done, uh, which, you know, I wasn't involved in any of it, but I guess why not? Right. Um, but I think we're there now and it's, uh, I'm not really entirely sure how you fight back against it. And I'm also very confused about, why the people in power in the United States have not just allowed this to happen, but played a significant role in it happening. You know what I mean? Right. Like I, I wonder to myself how so-called progressives benefit from any of this. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it's not it's not beneficial for America to be weak. If you want to live an unadulterated, uninhibited life where you you're free to do more or less whatever you want as long as you don't victimize anybody else this is certainly the best place to do it or it was right and i don't understand attacking that infrastructure frankly it's it it reminds me of the soviet useful idiot model almost but that makes sense for the population but not for the leadership you know what i mean i don't understand why progressive leaders since the 1950s have pushed this ideology and this agenda to what end i mean maybe they're just stupid but it's really intelligent people that are doing this you know what i mean so i don't believe that no, it is intentional. And I think um, that the intention has to be that they will see in America that is what uh, they are trying to uh, create. You know, they what they are dismantling is um, is intentional, like what they are doing. And, and but, I, but I, what's I, the end state? Like, let's say you're AOC and you want to defeat the patriarchy and blah, 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 all this other bullshit. Um, uh, you want equity and not equality. What what exactly yeah. is the end state there? Like what how what world do you think that's going to make that's better than the world we current? I, I just don't understand it. I, I would love to no. not not that you believe that. So I guess I'm asking the wrong person. Right. I'm just curious no. about your uh, thoughts on no, that. No, I am. I analyze it all the time exactly because I also you know came into it with a really very dramatic uh, contrast, which was why. Did the Democratic Party, you know, enable Islamists who have values so contrary to this country? And now what I have seen is this marriage of the Islamists, you know, with the mm. leftists to this new ends. And I the the um the most um like the most benign um future that I believe that I could predict that they are wanting is one that they are branding as democratic socialism mm. you know um when you like in in the book what i do is i look at the islamists and i look at their marriage first with the socialists and then um and then with these you know more progressive even you know political actors in the Democratic Party. And what we see is 
first, you know, there they are, just their Muslim organizations in the early 2000s. And then we see the rise of this organization that you know of Justice Democrats, mm. right? Um, Sank Yutger, you know, who Young Turks mm. host. And then they groom uh, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and AOC among their first batch of politicians for that new world that they want to see in the U.S. And, and in that first batch, we can most explicitly see this marriage, I think, of the Islamists with the leftists. And it's through Justice Democrats. And then Justice Democrats uh, endorse Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. And you'll be interested to know that, you know, seeking that I um, sense of populism that I also you know, refuse uh, the character assassination on that concept. I voted for Bernie Sanders in the Democratic primary in 2016. And then he was endorsed by this Palestinian activist named Linda Sarsour, who I knew very well. And she was from the Islamist universe that wants to destroy the state of Israel and really undermine the America that I love. Mm -hmm. So did a big flip. And in the fall of 2016, then I voted for Donald Trump, my first Republican vote for president ever. And so that is a consequence too that of their marriage of those people that can see it also clearly. And and I, I want to say that I think people are pushing back. People are among the people and also among politicians. Um, but the most benign um, prediction that I can have is of a nation of democratic, a democratic socialist country. But I do think that um, it their design is a diabolical one that is exactly fits that game plan that you were talking about uh, of disrupting mm. the nation, demoralizing the people. And I knew that uh, in the summer of 2020 when this network came after merit admissions to my son's high school, Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology. So here I am living the life of, you know, Muslim feminist, Muslim reformer. And all of a sudden, how did I become a mama bear in Virginia fighting back against this? It was because I saw that the Islamist network had had won to power the education secretary in Virginia, a man by the name of Atif Carney, they had gotten elected to the school board here in Fairfax County, Virginia, a daughter of the Islamist movement, a woman by the name of Abrar Omesh. And what they did is they collided with these justice Democrats. They colluded, is probably a better word, mm -hmm. but they both collided and colluded with the Justice Democrats and the leftists in order to destroy merit admissions at America's number one high school, seizing the crown jewel of America's educational system for a wider plot and plan that has unfolded in school districts around the country from um, Culver City, California, where they've gotten rid of English honors mm -hmm. class to Boston, where they have a lottery system for their best schools. And 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 it is, uh, it is difficult, I know, for people to wrap their minds around this 
these actors and their intentions, but and their effect. But um, but what do you do when you just like you said in that game plan? You demoralize people. Mm-hmm. You destabilize the the society. And um, you know, behind me, this last this last column of books. This is the extension chronologically of Islamism over here, and now this is the wokeism. Mm. So, what is that picture I have there? That poster is one from one of our parent rallies to save merit. Because what is merit? Merit is excellence. Merit mm. is accomplishment. Merit makes you competitive. And what do I have behind these books? Behind the poster, I'll just pull out some of them, you know. And this is. This is the way that they're doing it. Guilt people with white fragility. You get the majority of people in this nation to feel shame. You then bring in concepts that completely undermine identity. So we used to have A is for Apple, Mm -hmm. right? Now we have books like A is for Activist and Bye bye binary, you know, to question mm. issues of gender, sexuality. You question people's pronouns. You expose children too early to books like this. Like, if you're a drag queen and you know it, now these are the headlines that people have been seeing. And um, Black Lives Matter, you know, ends up being used also as a Trojan horse for this indoctrination gender queer, sexuality issues. You literally put out a book that tells children, I mean, it's just unbelievable and unconscionable. You tell them how to go on the internet and share photos of themselves. Naughty pictures, they call it. So what are you doing there? I mean, you're undermining the mind, the spirit, the soul, the identity. And you dismantle and destabilize this country. I mean, thank you so much for like laying out that blueprint mm-hmm. of um, you know how the Soviets did it, because that's very much the blueprint that people could imagine is happening today. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, and the the general premise of this show, the reason I called it Citizen, is because um, you know it's become kind of the behavior du jour to, to whine about, you know, things being unfair to talk about your rights and, uh, why, you know, I've, I deserve this or that's unfair or whatever. Right. Um, and the action behind that sort of thing has become kind of just, I don't know, aimless activism is part of it, obviously. Uh, but a big part of it as well is to depend on the state, to secure your rights for you, but that's not how that's supposed to work. Right. Like you're, you are responsible for securing your own rights. Um, and the difference between the two is if the state secures your rights, then you're a subject. And if you secure your own, you're a citizen. And yeah. And I just want to tell everybody mm -hmm. that, you know, um, uh, we, we were parents in the summer of 2020, just confused like everybody else to what was going on. And we took it upon ourselves then to read the books, to talk to each other, to just question, 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 question. I've been an investigative reporter for 30 years, so I knew how to file public records requests, right? Started doing that, 
getting to truth, finding out how money is spent, speaking up at the school board meetings. First, we started off with being allowed three minutes and they'd show our faces. Then it became two minutes and they showed only the backs of our heads because they needed to dehumanize us. Yeah, but I just want everybody to know that like, I am living proof and our parents' movement today is living proof that the individual can make a difference. My great friend in the summer of 2020 was a mom that I met just that summer named Suparna Datta. She was an immigrant from India like myself, like I was. She was in technology, not even in politics. She was with me. We would have these marches, you know, first with, you know, required masks, right? It was Ralph Northam's Virginia. We'd wear the masks and we went out there. Hundreds of parents would come in the fall of 2020 before this was on people's radar. But we were fighting for our kids, right? Because you don't get between a mama bear and their cub and their future. And so Barna ended up leading this educators coalition for a man by the name of Glenn Youngkin. Mm -hmm. And then in the fall of 2021, he was elected. And Jake Tapper just had a CNN town hall meeting with Governor Youngkin. And who was sitting there? Subarna Dutta. Now a player in the political public policy setting world, a trusted ally, and it, and most of the points that Governor Youngkin was talking about were ones that we the parents had raised. Mm. The fact that they had privileged bingo in Fairfax County Public Schools. The fact that they withheld National Merit Awards from kids, including my own son. The fact that they are, uh, you know, keeping secrets from parents about children and their gender pronouns and their names. So we, the parents, created the agenda for the politicians and the policymakers, we got them elected and the most sincere of them will never forget you, right? They will continue and sometimes they will forget and you just have to <clears throat> keep hustling. But I just want you guys to know that like, I was, I didn't even, <clears throat> as a journalist, hardly even signed a petition before the summer of 2020. And now I just want to tell you that your one voice can make a difference. You start a um, Twitter account with four followers and you just ask questions. You file a Freedom of Information Act request somewhere. You um, buy a book, you know, share it with a neighbor. Anything that you do is an act of citizenry. Right. Uh, yeah, I agree 100%. And uh, the, the very first thing you can do about that is arm yourself with the truth, right? Um, and one of the ways you can do that is by buying the book, Woke Army, the Red Green Alliance that is destroying America's freedom. Uh, it's pretty much anywhere you can buy a book, but obviously Amazon's the easiest. Um, look, I really appreciate your time today and oh you sharing your experience. Thank you so much. Thanks for you know having these conversations mm -hmm. because if we just have them inside of our heads, um, then you know we don't get that shift in collective consciousness. Mm -hmm. So you are doing that just by raising your voice and bringing folks like me on to talk with you. So thank you for doing all that you're doing. Yes, ma'am. Anytime. Uh, again, I really appreciate you coming today and we appreciate all of you watching and listening. This is Bit Citizen.
everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.